You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, where we've been studying for a number of Sunday evenings. If you're using the church Bible, the passage is on page six, I believe, and we're reading this evening Genesis chapter three and verses 20 through 24. Genesis 3, 20 through 24. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, this is, I think, our ninth study in Genesis uh, 1 through 3, and uh, I think it's going to be the last one unless I have an unusual manifestation of uh, further illumination. And so, in many ways, this brings us to the conclusion of what we have been noticing as the foundation stone of the whole of Scripture. I said, I think, last Lord's Day evening that just as the philosopher Alfred Whitehead said that you could summarize the history of Western philosophy as a series of footnotes to Plato, uh, you could also say about the Old Testament and, in a sense, about the Bible, that the Bible is a series of footnotes to Genesis chapter 3 and particularly the promise on which we focused our attention last time in verse 15, the promise of an elongated conflict between the seed of the serpent on the one hand and the seed of the woman coming to a final conclusion when the serpent himself, not the seed of the serpent, but the serpent himself would crush the heel of presumably one particular seed, offspring of the woman, and in the course of crushing his heel, would have his own head crushed, his power destroyed, his strategy debilitated. And in many ways, the text on which the whole of the New Testament stands is an exposition of that, Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18, I've come into the world to build the church, and the gates of Hades will seek to overwhelm it, but I will keep building my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Gates, of course, in the pages of the Bible are the location where strategy is formed. The elders of a city meet at the city gates, and there they devise strategies for the safety and security of their city. And here is this picture that Jesus is painting of the, of the strategies of the powers of darkness seeking to maintain the territory they have won from Adam, who was given dominion over the whole world. But now in the rest of the Bible, the evil one is described as the prince of this world, the god of this age. And all of this, therefore, 
comes to its climax in the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as eventually the book of Revelation reminds us in Revelation chapter 12, Christ overcomes the great red dragon whom John describes as the ancient serpent of John of Genesis chapter 3. And then eventually, of course, when you at last get to the last pages of the Bible, you discover you're actually back in the first pages of the Bible and the imagery that is being used to describe the new Jerusalem, the coming city of God, is the imagery of a garden city. And there is a river runs through it that descends from the holy mountain of God as these rivers descended in the garden of Eden. There is the tree of life growing, and there is the final restoration and glorification of all things. And so, this is very much… this is a miniature Bible, really, Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and it points us towards eventually both the conflict in which the church and the individual believer is always engaged. We live in enemy-occupied territory. The Christian life, as we saw this morning, is by definition a battle. Don't be surprised by suffering, says the Apostle Peter, as though something strange were happening to you. How did he know that? Because he was, in a special sense, one of those through whom Christ was building His church in enemy-occupied territory. And so, we've come this evening to the conclusion of this, and in many ways, this is the final movement of a great symphony in Genesis chapter 3, the first movement in which the tempter comes on the scene and brings about the fall of the man and the woman, the second movement in which God comes, they hear the judgment sound of His presence in the garden as He comes and He engages in cross-examination. And then the verdicts are pronounced in verses 13 through 19. And then finally, there is a kind of quiet movement at the end of this cataclysm that has taken place. And the theme of the final movement is actually the theme of glorious hope. There have already been hints of God's grace and His mercy in the preceding verses. He had promised in the day that you will eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, literally, He had said, dying you will die. And into that word of condemnation, although they would return to the dust from which they had been made, God has interjected words of grace, words of promise, words of hope. Uh, The word of hope for the woman is that she will be able to continue in her most sacred tasks of being the helper of the man and the mother of his children, although she will engage in both of these activities with intense struggle, struggle in the birth of children because of the pain of labor, and struggle in her relationship with her husband as God says to her, uh, you remember from last week, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's actually the language that's used in Genesis 4-7 when God issues a, a warning note about sin couching at the door, and its desire is for you to master you and it's a description of struggle. It's a description to the woman of the struggle she will have with the fact that 
the man who has been given to her to lead her, to care for her, deserted his task, and now is a failure as a husband. And so, as it were, injected into this most special relationship in life is the the ongoing struggle for mastery of self and mastery of the other. First thing you need to say to a young couple uh, when they come to you, if you are a minister or you are helping them with marriage, and they say, we believe that we are wonderfully compatible, the first thing you need to know is that you are basically incompatible. Because in order to be compatible, you will both need to die to yourselves in order to live for the other. And this has been injected. What was easy is now intensely difficult for the woman. I've never been a woman. I don't ever expect to be a woman. I think I'll be a man throughout all eternity. And so, uh, I can't speak from experience, but if you're a preacher, you've got to preach on things of which you have no personal experience, but much observation. I would not like to live with me, you understand. And then there's a word of hope for the man, although it is also tinged with struggle. His calling to have dominion over the earth, as we've seen, to, to be an agriculturalist, to be engaged in animal husbandry, to be a scientist and a botanist and a biologist and an engineer who exercises dominion in every conceivable sense over this world. And uh, now that task continues. But his basic task of finding food for his family is a task in which he's fighting against the soil. And there are thorns and thistles and even physically, he's destined to become part of the dust over which he was supposed to be Lord. The very stuff from which he was taken is ultimately, in a sense, going to swallow him up and be his master. And there's a word of great hope, although it comes in the midst of the darkest curse of the three, in the fact that life now for believing people will be perpetual conflict, not just struggles in the home and struggles in the calling, but struggle against dark powers. But there is injected into the middle of this this wonderful promise that the man and the woman obviously overheard of God's victory in the coming Savior. And it's interesting that this last section then opens up with Adam exercising faith. Uh, If you just reflect for a moment on the words, you will see that they sound very casual, don't they? Almost incidental. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. It just seems like an obvious thing to say. This is the first woman, and therefore, by definition, she will be the mother of all the living. But this is the man on whom a death sentence has just been pronounced. And so, this is a man who has actually reached into these words that God has spoken, and he's found in them a promise of God. And he's exercising faith in that promise of God. When he turns to his wife, apparently they've, uh, they've been waiting to be introduced to each other by their Christian names, as it were. And he says, what did he say, honey, darling, little petal, I think we should call you Eve as a symbol that we trust in this promise of God that despite all of our disastrous failure, there is still hope, and our calling has not been destroyed. And the wonderful thing about this statement is, I think, the way in which Adam reaches into God's Word, and he he pulls out a promise, 
and he rests his faith in this promise. The words that come into my mind uh, just in passing are little Jack Horner, sat in the corner, eating his plum pudding, put in his hand, and he pulled out a plum. Then, of course, he made the mistake. He said, what a good boy am I. But you see, here are, these, here are these words that you could read again and again and never really think that something very significant is taking place here. Because what Adam is doing is he's reaching into these words that God has spoken, and by faith he sees, although these are judgment words, he sees as it were, a peril of great price in the midst of these judgment words. And he says, that's what I'm going to hold on to. And I'm going to, we're going to symbolize that. We're going to show this to all history by from now on calling you Eve, because you are going to be, we who have been under the death judgment of God, we are the couple in our lives through you, Eve. You are going to become the mother of all living. It's actually the first time, I think, in the Scriptures that they have clearly exercised faith in the promise of God. And I think it's a real indication to us that even although we are believing people, trusting God's promises is not something that just happens automatically thinking about this, I remembered a phrase that I've read countless times in the older writers of previous generations. They used to speak about acting faith. They didn't mean pretending to have faith. What they meant is that as Christians, we have a disposition to trust, but there's more than the disposition there's reaching into the Word and into the promises of God and taking hold of them and say, promise, I will believe you. I trust in you specifically. I'm holding on to you. I'm expecting you to be fulfilled. Like you remember Pilgrim in uh, the Pilgrim's Progress when he and Hopeful are locked up in Doubting Castle and giant despair is threatening to tear them to pieces, and he's shown them the limbs of those pilgrims. He's already torn to pieces, and they're, they're in great difficulties. What does Christian do? Eventually, it dawns on him, he says. Oh, he says, what a fool I've been. There is a key in my bosom. And he, he, he brings out this key. It is the key promise and it opens all the doors in Doubting Castle, and they are set free. And it's a real illustration, isn't it, of how we can go along in the Christian life mournfully and feel that things are just too overwhelming for us, and all the while there is the key. And uh, where is the key? Well, it's where you keep your keys, isn't it? Uh, it's in your pocket, but it's never going to open the door as long as you keep it in the pocket. And here is Adam, as it were, taking the keys out of the pocket, and he's opening the door of hope into the future. And it's in that context, fascinatingly, it's almost as though God sees Adam and seeing Adam acting faith, then God says to himself, I think I'll do more to help this fellow and this girl. And three things happen. There are three statements made here in the rest of this passage. The first is related to what God makes for them. The second is related to what God says to them and the third is related to what God does to them. And so, here is Adam exercising faith, but you see then, you see the flow here, the movement. I better not get into musical terms, or I will say the wrong thing, but there's a, there's a flow here 
in which what faith grasps is what God sovereignly does. So, what is it? First of all, what is it that God makes? Well, He makes clothes for them, doesn't He? Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Again, just seems to be, well, can't have these people running around naked in my garden, but it's a very deliberate contrast in the passage to what had been said earlier on in verse 7. You remember when they, their eyes were opened, they realized that they had sinned, they sewed fig leaves together, verse 7, and made coverings for themselves. But as soon as they heard the voice of the Lord that they recognized, they realized these fig leaf coverings are no good when it comes to God. And so, here they are. They've got fig leaves on. They're, 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 wearing, their, they're wearing their camouflage suits, and so that you can see them in the trees, you know, trying to camouflage themselves as rather unusual fig leaves as though God might not notice them. If you have an Anglican or Episcopalian background, you will know by heart the words of the collect at the communion service as you come to God as the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. This is the God with whom they have to do, and the, this clothing is useless. That's what they need to learn, that they are not capable of clothing themselves. Only God can clothe them in a way that will enable them to stand in His presence and to have ongoing fellowship with Him. And so, the failure of their clothing is substituted by the success of God's clothing. And I think it must surely be significant that He clothes them with animal skins, that there's at least a little hint here that will be teased out in the rest of the Scriptures, that for us to be clothed in the presence of a holy God, we who are sinners, then somehow or another there must take place a sacrifice. The judgment pronounced on them had been a judgment of death. And if they were to have life in God's presence, then that judgment must be fulfilled. God must righteously complete and fulfill His Word. And here He does it. Again, there is no explanation, but here He does it by making clothes for them at the costly sacrifice of an animal in order for them to be clothed. It's as though God is saying you need to understand that a substitute must die. Somebody must die this death if you are to be clothed in my presence. And He provides them with this marvelous covering because he understands they can neither hide themselves, nor clothe themselves, nor pardon themselves. Hopefully, the language is disappearing from the vocabulary of Western people, but I've met many Christians who've told me, I need to learn to pardon myself. Now, you need to respond to that graciously, but at least inwardly, you need to be saying, forget about it, pal. There's no way in the world you can pardon yourself. You can deceive yourself, but you can't pardon yourself. What you need to do is to receive God's pardon and God's covering. And this is something that's picked up in the Bible, isn't it? Remember the great passage in Zechariah chapter 3? If you don't know anything in Zechariah, you probably know Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua, the high priest, is appearing in the presence of God, and he's being accused by Satan, who's like the, the, the counsel for the prosecution. Look at him. Look at these dirty clothes he's wearing. He's not fit to be in your presence. And the Lord says, well, take those dirty clothes off and put new clothing on him. Or Augustine, you remember, 
Those of you who know the marvelous story of his conversion from uh, a self-centered, flesh-driven, ambition-soaked life, and as he's sitting in the garden in Milan, where he is eventually gone, he hears a voice in another garden saying, Tolly Leggy, pick it up and read it. And he turns to the book that's sitting on the table where he's been sitting contemplating life in the garden, and he picks it up, and uh, he opens it in the letter of Paul to the Romans and to these words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And the penny drops, the eyes are opened, and he realizes that's the clothing he needs, that in strange ways he's been searching for in the bankruptcies of the philosophies of his time. And from that time onwards, he is clothed in Jesus Christ. So, if Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.20 is the first picture of how the gospel works. We come to Christ, foul and full of sin I am, and we ask Him to clothe us in His righteousness. And God makes clothes that enable them to stand in His presence. And then in verse 22, not what God makes now, but what God says And I think there is some measure of irony in what God says, actually. Verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, you know how sometimes you can read the same words and uh, just the, the intonation, the emphasis can make them mean quite different things. At one level, God is saying, well, they're like us now, We'll have to do something about it. But you see, that was what they wanted, wasn't it? The serpent had said, take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be like God. And that's what he doesn't want. But he did want that, didn't he? Because he'd already made them as his image and likeness. Genesis 1.26, as we've seen. They were already like God, but they were like God as His creatures, as human beings. They weren't God, but as human beings, they were like God. They reflected God. They had fellowship with God. They had miniature experiences of God's glory. But uh, they wanted to have that all on their own without God. And so God is saying, well, they've become like us but they haven't found what they thought they wanted, have they? They become like us by becoming unlike us. They've learned the knowledge of good and evil by doing evil. When I meant them to learn the knowledge of good and evil by resisting evil, isn't that how it works? Isn't that how the Christian life works? Isn't it true that the more you resist temptation, the more you understand the nature of temptation and the deeper insight you have to the amazing difference between loving and serving the Lord and turning away from Him? Isn't that the Christian life? The more you go on, the more you discover the depth of the sinfulness of sin. And had they been obedient, the difference would have become clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer to them. But now they had learned the difference between good and evil by becoming fast-bound, as Wesley says, fast-bound in sin and nature's night and hiding from God. And so, I think there's something of an irony in this as God speaks His Word to them, but uh, He's concerned for them. He says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and so we need to step in. Second half of the verse he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also 
from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, is this God being mean? Um, Not any more mean than uh, if you have children, you teach them, and you act in such a way that they will never in their folly do things that will destroy them. And uh, although there's obviously some mystery attached to this uh, tree of life, it it does seem from the rest of the Bible that, that this is the tree that was reserved for them on the other side of a life of faithful, loving trust and obedience. And at some point, God would have said, it's time to take the tree of life. And as you take the tree of life, it's like a symbol of entering into a new stage of fellowship with me in which you will, as it were, be beyond the possibility of sin. That's how it appears in the book of Revelation, isn't it? To him who overcomes, says Jesus in Revelation 2-7, I will give to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. My purpose for such a one will the day will dawn when not only will you stop sinning, but obedience will become natural again. In that sense, it will become easy again and you'll never, ever sin. Remember the line of the hymn, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. What a day that will be. And you see, it's in order to guard him for that day so that in his sinful condition, he doesn't do what in our foolishness, in our sinful condition, we are tempted to do, do something from which there will be no return. And uh, so, God is protecting Adam and Eve from committing himself to a fallen life that will last throughout all eternity. It's really a vital moment, isn't it? Because he has these sinful tendencies. He could very easy, easily do what he did with respect to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, I'm going to have that one too and as it were, commit the sin against the Holy Spirit and call good evil and evil good so that Satan would become his permanent master. So, this is a critical moment in his life. And marvelously, God steps in. He says, although it will be very sore, it's very necessary. Better that I cut off Adam's right hand and he enter heaven than that he be sent to hell with both his hands intact. It's exactly the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And yet, there's something about the language that's used here that I think isn't very well brought out in the uh, New International Version. I think this language here, for those of you who are grammarians, is what people call an anakoluthon which is where you begin a statement, and then it, you know, the connection doesn't happen. And what God seems to me to be saying here is, now the Lord God said He's become like one of us, unless He reach out His hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever. Well, the sentence doesn't finish. And I think the reason it doesn't finish is because this is meant to express to us something of the deep emotion of God. It's almost as though the the way in which the language runs, at least this is the way I am persuaded it should be read. So, I don't say this dogmatically. Uh, This is a personal, private opinion, which I cannot ultimately demonstrate. It's almost as though the atmosphere is that God begins a sentence that He doesn't want to end. Because if He takes that fruit and lives forever in His fallen condition, He will be banished eternally from my presence, and I cannot 
contemplate that. The kind of thing you get hints of in the rest of Scripture. When God calls out in Hosea, for example, how can I give you up? Or when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, almost almost humanly speaking anyway, unable to contemplate the horror, how often I would have gathered you as a, as a mother hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you, and you would not, humanly speaking, it's, it's almost too much to contemplate the possibility that somebody could come to the point of no return and their rebellion against God be perpetually confirmed. I was thinking today of an occasion. I was a very young Christian. I went to visit friends, Christian friends in North Berwick, as it happened. And uh, I think I was 15. And uh, I'd gone for Sunday. I'd got up early. I'd got the bus to Edinburgh and the bus to North Berwick. I I was very naive. I'd lived a very sheltered life. I got back to the bus station in Edinburgh. I should have known to go by train. I, I went to the office and said, when is the next bus to Edinburgh? They said, there is no next bus to Edinburgh. The last bus has gone. And my parents at the time weren't uh, professing Christians. I thought, how am I going to explain? What am I going to do? I didn't have any money. I had a return bus ticket. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happened in the amazing providence of God. Well, I will. I was, I was inwardly crying out, Lord, help me. And I walked up to this double-decker bus in the Edinburgh bus station, and the, the conductress, so you can tell it was last century, she said, uh, can I help you? I said, I've missed the last bus to Glasgow there are no buses going to Glasgow. She said, this bus is going to Glasgow. Hop on. And I was brought home in this angelic bus from Edinburgh to Glasgow on wings of angels, the only person in a double-decker bus. But I, I can still feel the sense I've missed the last bus. There is no other bus. But imagine the last bus is the last bus into the presence of God, and you've missed it. And there is no other bus. And there is no angelic conductress saying, this bus will get you there. That's why he says, now we've got to prevent him. We've got to protect him. It's really just an amazing it's an amazing statement of grace, isn't it? And sometimes God does that in our lives, doesn't He? He takes away from us the very thing which our fingers are about to clench over because He sees what we don't see, and we are sore and in pain because we haven't held everything with an open hand before the Lord, saying, you can have it or you can give it to me. It is is your pleasure, and there are pains. But sometimes even in this world we see, thank God He protected me from that. What grace it is. It's a foolish parent who never says no to his or her children, isn't it? And it would be a poor God who never said no to His children when he saw that they would destroy themselves. Well, there's something God makes, there's something God says. And so, in verses 23 and 24, there's something God does. He shows mercy, but he doesn't forget judgment. A number of years ago, somebody saying to me, what should we say to, this was in the United States where capital punishment was still in vogue in many of the states, what should we Christians do about somebody who has been convicted of homicide, first-degree murder, and is about to be executed and is converted? And the person rather strangely thought, somehow or another, because they've been converted, they shouldn't feel the full force of the law. 
And I said, you rejoice in their conversion. And if you're living in that state, you execute them as Christians. Actions have consequences. Now, that seems very dramatic because we don't have the death penalty. Think about a different way. Somebody who, in between murdering another human being and being imprisoned, is converted. Should we all go to the jail and say, you need to let this man out of here? He's been converted. No, don't say that at all. We realize that actions have consequences, and God does not remove the consequences of our actions, generally speaking. And the consequence of their action, both in judgment and in mercy, isn't that what the Scriptures plead for? In judgment, remember mercy. They don't say, in mercy, forget judgment. And so, Adam and Eve are taken out of the Garden of Eden. And we have this strange picture at the end of the passage. He drives the man out. Interesting language, isn't it? He drives the man out. There's something kind of fierce about that. And then on the east side of the Garden of Eden, presumably where the entry was, like the temple, he places these cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, here's an interesting question. If you were an Israelite reading Genesis 3, how would you know what a cherub was? You hadn't been into the local Christian bookstore where you can find perhaps still cherubs in abundance, funny little creatures, you know. I can't imagine a cherub is a funny little creature like that. Ah, but you remember what we've seen already. Those who read Genesis 1 were reading the Pentateuch backwards, weren't they? I mean, they were at least in the wilderness and perhaps even about to enter into the promised land. They knew about cherubs. How did they know about cherubs? Because they carried through the wilderness this uh, box, the Ark of the Covenant that God had told them to to make, and on top of that Ark was a, a sheet, a covering sheet that was called the mercy seat. And over that mercy seat were two images, creatures, cherubs with their wings outstretched, touching one another and guarding the entrance to the holiest place of all. And there was somewhere else that these cherubs appeared, interestingly. They appeared on the curtain that guarded the way into the holy presence of God. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because what God is saying here is that uh, if you're ever to be brought back into the Garden of Eden, somebody is going to need to break through. Break through the flaming sword that will kill them in the process, inevitably, inexorably and part the curtain on which the cherubs stand guards to keep the way back to God. You know, as we come to the end of all this, it is surely significant that at the beginning of the Gospels we're told that when Jesus came to bring us back to God, His public ministry began after his baptism by him being driven out into the wilderness, where Mark tells us he was surrounded by wild animals and tempted. It's almost as though, surely it's not just almost as though Mark is really saying to us, do you see that a grand reversal is taking place here? The second Adam comes not into a garden where the animals are tame and obedient, but into the wilderness into which Adam was driven out. Jesus is, we are told in the Gospels, literally driven out into the wilderness, surrounded by untamed beasts in order to face temptation. 
in order to discover what it means that there is good and there is evil, and he is called to live the life of God's goodness for God's glory in his place. Until in the Garden of Gethsemane, he contemplates what it is going to mean for him to be the one who will break through the flaming sword. Remember how the Gospels tell us that prophecy was fulfilled where God says, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And in His death on the cross, He breaks open the kingdom of heaven for us, and in the process is smitten by the sword. And how marvelous it must have been for these first believers as they read this particular section of Genesis chapter 3 to remember how when he cried out, it is now finished, I've done it. That curtain in the temple on which the cherubim, into which the cherubim were woven to guard the way back to God, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom because he had indeed done it. That's why Hebrews speaks about the fact that there is a a way back to God through the torn veil, the torn curtain of the flesh of Jesus Christ. And why both in chapter 2 and in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the first one in it's translated author in some of our versions. He is the author of our salvation. But it means he's the first one in. And because he has gone in, we can all go in with him through faith. Funny how things come back to you. What came back to me thinking about this was a song I think I was probably taught as a little fellow in Sunday school. There's a way back to God from the dark path of sin. There's a door that is open, and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. This is the foundation of the Bible, and it's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? People say, What is the gospel? You need to say today, it's more than Christ died for your sins. The gospel is we have a great and good God who made a marvelous creation, who created us so that we could know Him and in miniature be like Him and love Him and have the most intimate personal relationships with one another. But we have sinned and fallen And yet God has shown amazing mercy. He's kept His promises down through the years. He's fulfilled them in Jesus Christ. But you and I need to be clothed because He is the one before whom all our secrets are exposed. And He says to us for the first time, for the thousandth time, be clothed in Jesus Christ. Put off the old way. Live out the new way. And enjoy what it means to find the way back to God that brings you into this glorious, yes, tough, but glorious new life in Jesus Christ. Well, have you pressed through the curtain? That's the question isn't it? Into His presence. And know that the flaming sword is behind you. Even before you get to the final judgment, the flaming sword is behind you because Christ has taken its sharp blows for you. No wonder we sing about what a great Savior He is. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for the riches, the treasures of your Word, for the way in which it brings us great simplicities and at the same time great profundities, in which it highlights the marvel of Jesus Christ and also shines a spotlight on the the depth of our sin and our rebellion and our need. We thank you that Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of the needs of all of the people in this room tonight. And we pray that we may act faith given our needs, our sins, our failures, our weaknesses, our doubts, our fears, our past, our present, our future. Help us to reach out our empty hand of faith into this part of Your Word and hold on to the promises that You've given to us in Jesus Christ. We ask this for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.